Hey guys, it's JM here. And uh, you're used to seeing me at Roots Chris, but because I am a knucklehead who doesn't know how to check the batteries in his lapel mic, the study that we did last week, our final study of the year for the Book of Numbers, uh, there's no audio for it. I didn't think you would want to just look at me gesticulating for 30 minutes, so decided back here at Disciple Dojo Study, um, we're just going to go through what we covered during the last week of Numbers when we finished up the book and we looked at how it ended, how Israel had gone from, at the beginning of the book, um, they just had this, they're, they're being formed as a new community. They're, they were a rabble of slaves. Now they are being formed throughout the book of Numbers as uh, God's army. Literally, I mean, that's why Numbers is called Numbers, because there's two censuses, sensi, sensi, two of those things where you count people, and the reason you count them is to number the troops. Whenever there's census in the Bible, it's for the numbering of troops. It's military census. And so we saw that, and that's what Numbers is, the first generation were numbered as troops. They marched out, and they were ready for battle, but they weren't. They rebelled. They turned against God. They turned against Moses. They said, we want to go back to Egypt. Uh, forget this. They're too strong. They're too powerful. And so God said, all right, you lost the blessing. You're, you're out. You, you have forfeited your salvation that I brought you out of Egypt to accomplish. But I am true to my promises. And the people of Israel, the children of Israel as a whole, the entity, the corporate entity, has not uh, forfeited anything because God promised that they would, he would carry on his promise, his covenant through them. So one generation missed out on the blessing, on the salvation, on the fullness of what God had. And the second generation, their offspring then, that's who we've been tracking with in the last part of the book of Numbers, in the second half of the book, after that second census, this new generation, the question throughout is, are they going to be faithful or are they going to be like their parents? And we see that throughout the last few chapters, they've, they've been more faithful than they have been like their parents. Now, some shades of the previous generation have popped up, but not disastrous. And Israel still is, the people of Israel are still intent on going and taking the land that God has called them to take as judgment on the specific peoples of Canaan. And that's important to remember, is God wasn't just giving Israel land because He wants Israel to have land. Um, and just that whole concept, even though it's so volatile today in today's political climate, especially, especially over the last uh, two weeks, it's not that God wants Israel or even the Jews to have land. In Torah, what we see is that God was bringing out the offspring of Abraham, the covenant faith offspring of Abraham, who were in covenant with him and using them as the means to drive out, to expel the particular peoples of Canaan that he was bringing his judgment upon. God had promised Abraham 400 years before that the Canaanites whom Israel would dispossess, by the time Israel was ready to come in, those Canaanites would be ready for judgment. So that's what we see. God doesn't give Israel carte blanche to go and attack any nation they want. He doesn't prevent foreigners and others from coming and entering into Israel, being part of Israel. He doesn't, uh, he, he's not, God's not uh, xenophobic. Contrary to what you may hear Richard Dawkins or other people who like to slam the Old Testament say, God's not a xenophobic God. He's a God of the nations. But He is a God who does judge nations from time to time. And in this instance, and what we'll see in the conquest in the unfolding books, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, is that the nations at times are ripe for judgment. 
And God will do that same exact thing to Israel herself, himself, when they become ripe for judgment. And he'll do it through Assyria, and then he'll fully do it through Babylon. And then by the time of the New Testament, he'll do it through Rome. So, again, it's all macro-level stuff that's important to keep in mind as we finish up this book of Numbers and head into Deuteronomy, which we're going to begin at the beginning of 2018. I'm really excited about Deuteronomy. We, we, we got to Numbers 35. That's where we ended in the previous uh, episode, for those of you that are following along. And the, the people, Israel, had gotten into the, the land, had been given to, God had said, this will be how you divvy it up when you go into the land. You'll, you'll separate it by the tribes, and here are the boundaries, and by the, the, each clan within the tribe will be um, chosen by lot. Determine, it's kind of like roll of the dice, draw of the straw kind of thing. And so the land's all divvied up, including the land on the Transjordan, on the, on the east side of the Jordan River. Israel proper, Canaan is on the west side, but we saw a few chapters ago that the two and a half tribes had said, hey, we'll help you, we'll go in and we'll fight for the land and we'll risk and sacrifice and do all that stuff. But when it's all said and done, we want to come back over here because this land on the east side of the Jordan is good for us, for our cattle, for our crops, for our women and children. Uh, it's good land. So God, Moses said, okay, as long as you're willing to go in, then you do, you forfeit your inheritance in Canaan and you can come back and settle in this area. So all of that's been kind of taken care of in terms of, um, at least on paper, and now what we have is there's just a few final details about the land and uh, when they get into the land, the legal matters that need to be wrapped up. And so that's where we look at chapter 35. It says, On the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, across from Jericho, the Lord said to Moses, Command the Israelites to give the Levites towns to live in from the inheritance the Israelites will possess, and give them pasture lands around the towns, then they will have towns to live in and pasture lands for their cattle, flocks, and all their other livestock. The pasture lands around the towns that you give the Levites will extend out 1,500 feet from the town wall. Outside the town, measure 3,000 feet on the east side, 3,000 on the south side, 3,000 on the west side, and 3,000 on the north, with a town in the center. They will have this area as pasture land for the towns. So now remember the Levites. They were the tribe who don't get any land. They were the tribe... What was the Levites' job? They were to guard God's presence from the people and vice versa. In other words, they were to be the buffer between the holiness of God that dwells in the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies and the commonness of the people all around and the world all around. So the Levites were like this buffer ring around God's presence. Now when Israel goes into the land, there's a problem. How will the people who are way up in the north people way up in the south, how will they have this relationship or this, this holiness protection in their midst? In other words, if God is just remains in this tabernacle space and the Levites guarding him, then it's like the Levites will just camp out all around this camp. And what happens when the rest of the country goes and is, is inhabited? The Levites won't be up in the north. The Levites won't be in the south. They won't be on the coast. The, the Levites will just be stuck in the middle. And God says, no. Actually, the Levites, they're not going to get land, like territories. They're going to get cities within all of the territories. So you're going to provide cities for the Levites. And the Levites, they aren't even really going to get the cities in terms of owning them. They'll live in the cities, 
they'll get the pasture land around the cities to use for their crops, or excuse me, for their flocks and for their herds. So the Levites, and remember that's the main way that Levites got paid, uh, provided for, is through the offerings of the people. And in particular, the sacrifices and the animals and all that. Levites were like, keep in mind, they were kind of like the, 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 the teachers, the theologians, the lawyers, and the butchers. Uh, they, they handle all of that stuff. So the Levites are going to get space around these cities, these Levitical cities. And so rather than having God in the tabernacle in a central place and then the Levites surrounding Him in a central place and then all of Israel spread all over, what you have instead is God is sending His emissaries, His representatives, the Levites, into all the places where Israel will go. So God's presence will permeate the land through the Levites. It's a really cool concept that God is not just in a holy huddle. You know, right now they're huddled up around the tabernacle because Israel is wandering. They're a military march, or excuse me, they're a military force on the march. So they have to have this central camp. And that's what they've been for 40 years. But they're going to transition from nomadic military camp into settled agrarian life in this land. And so when that happens, the role of the Levites is going to shift as well. And they're going to become these administrators, these, these priests or, or religious workers or teachers, especially the role will be to teach, um, to spread knowledge of God throughout the land for the other tribes. And in return, they'll receive cities and they'll receive places where they can raise their flocks and their herds. But the Levites, remember God said, you don't get land, I'm your inheritance. I'm your inheritance. And so the calling of the Levites is very interesting in that regard. They're the clergy tribe, so to speak. So then God goes on to say, uh, and this, these cities are chosen, by the way, in Joshua 21. You see how this all plays out. Then God says, now, verse 6, six of the towns you give the Levites will be cities of refuge or cities of asylum to which a person who has killed someone may flee. In addition, give them 42 other towns. In all, you must give the Levites 48 towns together with their pasture lands. The towns you give the Levites from the land the Israelites possess are to be given in proportion to the inheritance of each tribe. Take many towns from a tribe that has many, but few from one that has few. Then the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into Canaan, select some towns to be your cities of refuge, to which a person who has killed someone accidentally may flee. They will be places of refuge from the goel, this Hebrew word goel, which is translated in some translations, NIV says avenger, or others say blood avenger, or some older translations, I think even say revenger. It's the term that goel, it means uh, redeemer. The person, see, the goel was the person in the family or people in the family who were responsible for putting right something that had gone wrong within the family that a person couldn't put right themselves. So if a person had to sell, they were poor, they had to sell their land in order to feed their family, the goel would be the one who was responsible for buying that land from them in order to provide for the family so that that land stays within the tribe. Or the goel was responsible for redeeming someone. If they had to sell themselves into servitude, the goel could redeem them out of that servitude, could save them for the sake of the family and the family's name and reputation. The Goel was the, the kinsman, the, the, the relative, who was the redeemer. And that included putting right things that involved loss of life. 
if, if a person was killed accidentally, unintentionally, it wasn't murder, um, then there was a problem is, is what happens to them because the goel would be coming after them. When somebody, this is before, remember, this is before armies, uh, I mean, excuse me, this is before police, this is before courts of law like we have them today and prisons and jails. And if somebody killed someone in, in, in semi-nomadic societies where there wasn't a strong centralized government, justice and, and making sure justice happens falls on the family. Usually the head, the head of the clan or the head of the family is responsible for enacting justice. So if somebody kills someone in the family, the family has a representative, the next of kin, who frequently the next of kin, who then goes and kills the murderer, enacts vengeance, justice, retribution. This is how it works in these societies that don't have central law uh, apparatus to make sure all this happens. So what you have then is God is transitioning Israel from this nomadic society into a landed society, and there's going to be some tension between tribal justice, you know, nomadic tribal justice, and settled um, ancient Near East concept of cities and, and, and official justice. And in this in-between time, there's going to be some growing pains, and God knows this, so He's providing, He's saying, look, when somebody kills someone accidentally, and that's the key. It cannot be intentional. When someone dies accidentally or they do something that kills someone, they did not mean to hurt the person, but the person ends up dying. What we would call, like, I don't know, negligent homicide or uh, second degree murder. I don't know the legal categories, but, but uh, manslaughter or something like that. Then they're not guilty of murder, so their life can be spared. And he says that will happen by them fleeing to one of these cities of refuge. These cities where they'll be safe from, not the police, because there weren't any police, from the Goel, from the avenger. Because what God is preventing or wanting to prevent is blood feuds, family feuds, in the violent sense of the word, not the Steve Harvey sense of the word. Uh, these where somebody kills someone from this clan, then that clan sends a Goel, a redeemer, to kill someone who they think is guilty from that clan. But then this clan doesn't think that they deserve to die because they don't think it was a, a just execution. So they send somebody to kill from this, and then back and forth, back and forth, cycles of violence. And so that's what God is mitigating through this giving of these cities of refuge. He's saying, remember, the thing that polluted the land, the reason I'm driving these Canaanites out, is because they polluted the land through bloodshed. You go back and read, why did God cleanse the earth in the days of Noah? because of the rampant bloodshed, the violence, the corruption upon the earth that humanity had done. And so now in Canaan, it's the same way. When you have things like child sacrifice, right? That's bloodshed that pollutes the land. And God is sending in Israel to cleanse the land from the iniquities of its previous inhabitants. So in doing that, God's saying, and I don't want there to continue on this concept of, of, of innocent bloodshed. I'm trying to mitigate these uh, loss of life as much as possible through how I know you are as a society and how I know this world runs. Remember, God steps into history as it was in order to bring it along. He doesn't just drop down an ideal from heaven and say, this is the ideal and you all need to live up to it and this is for all time for all people. No, the God of Israel enters into the history of Israel to redeem the people of Israel and to give them his guidance. So, in doing that, then, we have to put ourselves in their setting and what they're going through. Um, he says, verse 13, 
These six towns you will give will be your cities of refuge. Give three on this side of the Jordan and three in Canaan as cities of refuge. Remember, Moses is outside Israel when he's giving this. These six towns will be a place of refuge for Israelites, for aliens or foreigners, and any other people living among them, so that anyone who has killed another accidentally can flee there. What, what compromises accidentally? Well, he's going to give some examples here. If a man strikes someone with an iron object so that he dies, he's a murderer. And the text in Hebrew actually doesn't say so that he dies. I mean, it, it could be translated that way, but literally in Hebrew it says if a man strikes someone with an iron object and he dies, you, you hit someone with something that could kill them and they die, you're guilty of killing them. You're a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if anyone has a stone in his hand that could kill and he strikes someone and he dies, he's a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if anyone has a wooden object in his hand that could kill and he hits someone so that he dies, he's a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. He shall put him to death. If anyone with, here's the key, if anyone with malice aforethought, that's what the NIV says, but really in Hebrew it says if anyone in hatred, if anyone with, with malicious intent, if anyone, I like in hatred, that's just a great way to say, if anyone in hatred shoves another or throws something at him intentionally and he dies, or if in hostility he hits him with his fist and he dies, that person shall be put to death. He's a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. So God's laying out what murder is. Murder is not just I intended to kill the person. Murder is I intended to harm the person and the person dies. It cuts down to the heart. See, we in our society today have this illegal thing where, you know, two guys get in a fight, one guy hates another guy, punches him, boom, 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 hits his head on concrete and the guy dies. The person who does it didn't mean to kill him, so he's not charged with murder. He's charged with like manslaughter or second degree or negligence, something like that. But what God says is, no, if you did it in malice, if the person did it in anger, did it with a desire to inflict harm on the person in some way, shape, or form, and he dies, he's committed murder. It actually raises the standard. And the punishment for murder in the Old Testament is the person who took the life forfeits their life. And this is the thing to remember about the death penalty. Wherever you land on the death penalty in modern society, and that's a debate that should be had by Christians, it's a debate where both sides, pro-death penalty, anti-death penalty, both sides can make valid arguments. If you think the other side can't, or they're just not reading the Bible or whatever, you're wrong. There are good arguments that can be made for both sides of the capital punishment issue. And we should listen to those, and we should reason it out, and we should find our way to what we think is the most just approach in our society today. That's a whole other issue. But in the biblical sense, in the Old Testament, God was not pro-murder, but God was pro-justice. And justice required, all the way back to Genesis 9, if someone takes the life of another person, their life is forfeit. Not out of a retributive sense, not even necessarily out of a preventative sense, although it does have that element in the text, but in the sense that you have taken, you have destroyed the image of God, you have sacrificed your own bearing of the image of God, your own life. And so, whatever you think, again, about the death penalty, know that in the Old Testament, in theory, it was enacted by God. Now, we have to account for the New Testament, 
We have to account for the fact that modern society is not theocratic covenant Israel. We have to attest for the fact that there are regulations even within Israel for how it could be carried out. But the concept itself is not a barbaric concept, at least according to Torah. It's not an outdated concept, and it's not something that we've grown beyond because we're more enlightened. No, it was never a simple matter of vengeance. It was much more than that. There's theological reasons why. Again, though, that's another time, discussion for another time. There's a difference, however, between murder and verse 27. But if without hostility someone suddenly shoves another or throws something at him unknown, un, unintentionally or without seeing him drops a stone on him that could kill him and he dies, then since he was not his enemy and he did not intend to harm him, the assembly must judge between him and the goel according to these regulations. The assembly must protect the one accused of murder from the goel and send him back to the city of refuge to which he fled. And he must stay there until the death of the high priest who was anointed with holy oil. But if the accused ever goes outside the limits of the city of refuge to which he's fled, and the avenger of blood, the goel, finds him outside the city, the goel may kill the accused without being guilty of murder. The accused must stay in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Only after the death of the high priest may he return to his own property. Now this differentiates, this differentiates another category of taking life, which is unintentional harm. If you don't mean to harm someone, if you didn't mean, if you accidentally, you bumped into somebody, they fell, they died, you dropped something, it rolled over, it kills them, whatever. These are the type of things that are involved. Later, Deuteronomy will mention two people uh, chopping wood or working with a stone, uh, an axe, and the axe handle, the head of the axe flies off and hits a person and kills them. Um, these types of things. Accidental death, where there's not the intention to hurt is not murder. And so the goel, the person, the goel who would be the one to, to enact justice on the behalf of the family, on behalf of the tribe, can't kill that person because it was not murder. It was what we would call manslaughter. It was unintentional. However, a life was still lost. A death, an unintentional, doesn't matter. It was still a death. Someone in the image of God died. So there are consequences. The person's not guilty of murder, but there are consequences because a life was lost. A piece of, of that tribe is gone forever and can't be replaced. And, and so as a way of emphasizing this, making this known, making this clear, is the person who did it, they don't forfeit their life, but in a sense they do forfeit their livelihood or their life as they knew it. And they have to stay in that city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Why? Well, the death of the high priest has significance in terms of atoning for people. Life pays for life, but in this case, the unintentional taking of life is paid for by the death, not the murder, not the sacrifice, but by the death of the high priest, who has the ability to stand for the people. And so it's this interesting situation. There are theological aspects to it. You know, only the death of the high priest can atone for all the sins committed, and uh, even these sins, the, the murder that's not really murder, but it seems like murder. All, this is very interesting in terms of what um, the death of the high priest can accomplish. And the New Testament will actually have a lot to say about that in the book of Hebrews, about the death of the high priest, capital H, capital P, high priest, Jesus himself. But he goes on to say in this last section, 
there to, uh, there to be legal requirements for you, excuse me, these are to be legal requirements for you throughout the generations to come wherever you live. Anyone who kills a person is to be put to death as a murderer, here's the key, only on the testimony of witnesses. No one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. Do not accept a ransom for the life of a murderer who deserves to die. He must surely be put to death. Do not accept a ransom for anyone who has fled to a city of refuge, and so allow him to go back and live on his own land before the death of the high priest. Two witnesses at minimum before any death penalty can be administered. That's something that gets forgotten when people think about the Old Testament. They think you're just, oh, killing people left and right. No. Anytime someone is guilty of a capital crime, there have to be two, at least two witnesses. And those witnesses have to be willing to testify with their own life. In other words, if a witness is found guilty of lying, that witness receives the penalty that they were trying to frame somebody else for. That's a, that, that, that would go a long way today in keeping people from wanting to lie when they're witnessing, but for emphasizing at least the importance of your words, your testimony. Life and death depends on the testimony. And so, no, you can't be put to death if it's just one person. So that he said, she said stuff will not result in death penalty. It'd be too easy to, uh, to, to abuse. Have to be multiple witnesses. And you can't accept a bribe. In other ancient Near East law codes, you could pay your way out of a penalty. You killed someone, you're rich, you don't suffer as much as somebody who's poor. That, that's, we see that a lot in our society today. Again, regardless of what you feel about capital punishment, it's very rare that uh, people who get put to death are not poorer, less educated minorities. And that's part of one of the things that Torah, God's law, speaks to our society today, is this underlying motive of justice. You cannot buy your way out of a capital punishment. You cannot even buy your way out of serving time, so to speak, in the city of refuge. You accidentally kill someone, you can't bribe your way out of the city of refuge. You stay there until the death of the high priest. So there's this egalitarian uh, concept that just cuts through all strata of society in the Old Testament as God's giving these laws for how Israel will be when they enter the land. And verse 33, do not, this is, the, this is the key to this chapter, do not pollute the land where you are. Bloodshed, even accidental, bloodshed pollutes the land. And atonement cannot be made for the land on which blood has been shed except by the blood of the one who shed it. Do not defile the land where you live and where I dwell, for I, Yahweh, dwell among the Israelites. And that's the key. And that's the culmination of this chapter and of the book of Numbers. I, Yahweh, I, the Lord, dwell, live, reside, tabernacle among the Israelites. And when you go into the land and you spread out, I will still be the God who dwells among you. I will still be the God who permeates all. Where Israel goes, I will be. So that's why God is holy. His people are to be holy. The land in which they live is to be holy. And a holy land cannot be a land that's filled with bloodshed. And so God's preparing this. He's telling this to His army. By the way, don't lose that. He's telling this to the people that He's about to say, go in now and drive these people out, which will involve bloodshed, which will involve enacting God's justice on these particular particular people groups, not just willy-nilly killing anybody in your way. Um, but we'll get to that when we get to Deuteronomy and Joshua. All right, last few minutes, we want to finish with chapter 36. Chapter 36 finishes what began in chapter 27, this issue of this guy named Salafahad who died 
He didn't have any sons to inherit, so his daughters actually got to inherit his property. And when you inherit property and you're the daughter, the question arises, so when I marry, that property will go to the family into whom I marry. And Zelophehad's relatives realized that means that there will be some loss of our land, our inheritance, if our sisters marry outside of the family. So that's what they say to Moses. We'll just buzz through this, chapter 36, because that's kind of a bookend to end it. It says, The family heads of the clan of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, who were from the clans of the descendants of Joseph, so these are the people in the clans of Manasseh, tribe of Manasseh, excuse me, came and spoke before Moses and the leaders and the heads of the Israelite families. They said, When the Lord commanded, my Lord, meaning Moses, to give the land as an inheritance to the Israelites by lot, he ordered you to give the inheritance to our brother, Tzalafahad, to his daughters. Now suppose they marry men from other Israelite tribes and their inheritance will be taken from our ancestral inheritance and added to that of the tribe they marry into. And so part of the inheritance allotted to us, meaning the tribe of Manasseh, will be taken away. And even when the year of Jubilee for the Israelites comes, their inheritance will be added to the tribe into which they marry. And their property will be taken from the tribal inheritance of our forefathers. In the Jubilee, when all land reverted back to its original owners, that only applied to land that was bought. That didn't apply to land that was inherited. And that's what's going on here, is these daughters, they've inherited this land. And so when they marry into, if they marry into another tribe, that tribe will gain possession of that land. And God had already said through Moses two chapters ago, land is not going to swap from tribe to tribe. It's, it's going to stay within the tribe. And that's really important for God and His purposes for Israel in the land, living as a tribal confederation. So, verse 5, Then at the Lord's command, Moses gave this order to the Israelites. What the tribe of the descendants of Joseph is saying, meaning the Manassites, is right. This is what the Lord commands for Salafahad's daughters. They may marry anyone they please, as long as they marry within the tribal clan of their father. No inheritance in Israel is to pass from tribe to tribe, for every Israelite shall keep the tribal land inherited from his fathers. Every daughter who inherits land in any Israelite tribe must marry someone in her father's tribal clan so that every Israelite will possess the inheritance of his fathers. Again, no inheritance may pass from tribe to tribe, for each Israelite tribe is to keep the land it inherits. So the solution is, yes, the, the two things are balanced. The right of the women to marry, to have families to be provided for, to have an inheritance that they have inherited from their father, and the right of the clan or the tribe to not lose part of itself to the, whoever they marry into. Two things that have to be balanced, the individual and the corporate. And so what God does is He balances those things. He says, yes, the women, the daughters of Zelophehad, they're free to marry. They can marry anyone they choose. They don't have to marry this particular person. And the, no, anybody with it, but it has to be someone within that clan. It has to be someone within that wider community of the tribe of Manasseh so that the land doesn't go away if they marry somewhere else. And so that's the solution God's put forth. And, verse 10, So Salafahad's daughters did as the Lord commanded Moses. Salafahad's daughters, Mala, Tirzah, Hogla, Milcah, and Noah, married their cousins on their father's side. They married within the clans of the descendants of Manasseh, son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in their father's clan and tribe. 
The book ends, These are the commandments and regulations the Lord gave through Moses to the Israelites on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. And this ends us, the book of Numbers, with Israel right there. That place on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. That's where Numbers ends because that's where they're then going to set out and they're going to march into the land of Canaan to take the land, starting with Jericho. But that won't happen until Joshua 3. The whole book of Deuteronomy is about to come next. Because before all this happens, Moses is going to gather all of Israel on these plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. And he's going to say, guys, this is as far as I can go. From now on, this guy Joshua is going to be the one that takes you there. And Moses is going to give his final sermon, or three sermons actually. He's going to speak to the people one last time, and then he's going to die. And that whole thing of speaking to the people and then dying, that's the book of Deuteronomy. And that's what we're going to study next year. But Numbers, we've been in Numbers for a year. We've been in the wild. We've been with Israel in the wilderness. And Numbers is a hugely formative book for our life as believers because like Israel, we are too in the wilderness. We haven't reached Canaan. We haven't reached the promised land, but we're not in Egypt anymore. We've been redeemed. We've been saved. Remember this language of saving and redemption and election. All of that's language, it's language that describes what God did to Israel as a nation. It has, it has nothing to do at this point in biblical history with what we think of today as getting saved or the elect and predestined and all that stuff that we think of as like my individual destiny. No, right now and maybe from then on, this is corporate language of God's corporate people, and it's describing their life after being saved, but before the consummation of that salvation, in that interim time, that wilderness time. And the wilderness, as we've seen, the wilderness is a time of testing, it's a time of reflection, it's a time of refining, it's a time of developing. Israel went from a rabble of slaves to a well-regulated army and did it all in the wilderness, in the wild. And that's what the name of the book of Numbers in Hebrew is, Bamidbar, in the wilderness. So when you're reading Numbers, and I hope this study's been helpful to you, know that you're reading about Israel's most formative years, ups and downs. Israel at their highest highs and their lowest lows during this time before they enter into Canaan. It's a very bumpy ride. It's a wild ride, which is only fitting for a book called In the Wild. But I've enjoyed this study. We're going to kick back up next year. This video today, this session today, maybe have been a little longer than previous ones, but because we wanted to cover the last two chapters. And then next year, 2018, we're going to kick it back off, and we're going to spend probably the year, like we did this time last year and the year before, in Deuteronomy. And so I'm really excited. I hope you come join us. Um, thanks for doing this study, and we'll see you in 2018.